thanks for tuning into this episode. We have a great Q&A with Dr. Kaz Nelson, um, who is a, a psychiatrist at the University of Minnesota, also taught Joe and I in medical school, one of our favorite professors. Um, also has her own podcast uh, with her brother entitled The Mind Deconstructed. Um, which actually Joe and I were uh, got the recommendation for from our dad, <laughs> and he has listened to most of the episodes as have we. So, um, hope you enjoy it. Uh, there was a little bit of a problem with the audio, so that it seems like Dr. Kaz is talking over me at the end of my points, but she is not. Rest assured, um, it was something to do with uh, the audio. I don't know what happened, but. It's not too choppy, so hopefully it doesn't detract from it too much for you. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. Kaz. Hello and welcome back to the What They Don't Tell You About Surviving Medical School podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sam, again, and uh, we have our other host, Joe, on the line too. And then we're joined, we're lucky enough to be joined today by Dr. Kaz Nelson here. Hello. Kaz, do you want to introduce yourself and and tell listeners sort of uh, a little bit about Yes, absolutely. My name is Dr. Kaz Nelson. You can call me Dr. Kaz. I have a podcast called The Mind Deconstructed that you might want to check out where we talk about basic mental health education, and that's with my brother, George. I'm a psychiatrist at the University of Minnesota, and I serve in the role of vice chair for education in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of Minnesota Medical School. So it's my pleasure to be here today. And I can't thank you both, Sam and Joe, enough for doing this podcast. It's something I would have loved to have had in medical school for sure, but didn't. So uh, I'm grateful to the service that you're doing to the student community. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, why don't we just get kind of straight into some questions here. As you know, with our podcast, we kind of try to focus on um, mental health, really um, amongst, you know, med students in particular. And then we know that the the podcast audience is a little bit more broad and some students and family members and stuff like that. But um, kind of off the bat, um, just thinking about, you know, depression and anxiety and how it manifests in in us as students or learners. Um, can you talk a little bit about signs to look out for kind of beyond just what your mood might feel like if you think you might have anxiety or, or depression? Um, kind of, you know, thinking about either physical, emotional manifestations. Absolutely. Either, both and I would just start out by saying that every single medical student, or I would say, you know, students in professional settings or high stakes settings where you've had to overcome lots of hoops or barriers or steps in order to achieve a certain level of training all have anxiety. Uh, Because by definition, you wouldn't be in the position you're in unless you were very conscientious, able to follow up on assignments, able to dedicate yourself to study in a way where maybe some of your peers are are doing things that are a little bit less fun or more interesting. Um, you're, you have your nose in a book or are at the computer screen learning. And so it would be wrong to think that students don't have anxiety or are somehow impervious or have um, their, their anxiety systems totally calm. It's usually the opposite. There tends to be even perfectionism or other 
anxiety-related traits in medical students. And that's not a bad thing. It underlies the excellence that medical students strive for. But where is the line where this anxiety enhances performance and when does it go into degrading performance? And what does that feel like? What does that really look like? Because as you point out, it might be a little bit different than, oh, I feel anxious. Um, you might not identify it that way. And in fact, um, you know, a lot of times uh, students aren't great at even being able to describe what they're feeling or match it with an emotion word. You might just feel a feeling in your body and not know, am I scared, excited, numb, uh, stressed, overwhelmed? Am I grieving? What is it? What is that feeling? But people feel it a lot of different ways. They sometimes notice that they might have their heart racing. They might notice sweating. They might have difficulty getting words out at different times. They might feel a rock in the pit of their stomach. It can manifest as sleep disturbance. Well, uh, I'll tell you one story that I, I share. Um, I was studying for one of the exams, I think it was step one, and I started taking a lot of ginkgo biloba when I was a student. So I thought my studying concentration, I don't recommend this by the way, but I was just a medical student, but uh, lots of ginkgo biloba and man, that really like jacked up my heart rate and my sweaty and had trouble sleeping. And I thought that that was anxiety. I thought, wow, I'm so anxious for this test. And it turns out it was mega dosing of ginkgo biloba that was messing up my whole system. <laughs> but sometimes people do that with caffeine too. Oh. They uh, will take a lot of caffeine or something like that. And so you gotta be careful because you might be feeling feelings and it might actually be anxiety or it might be a substance you're putting in your body generating these anxiety symptoms. And so it can be complex mm -hmm. and it's worth sorting out though because you will be able to pull some levers to move back into that functional anxiety range versus the non-functional anxiety range or where that anxiety raids your performance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sort right. of that window of tolerance or if you've heard of that expression yeah. use and where your anxiety is, you know, within the range of tolerance. And even propelling you, you know, who, who uh, yeah. You know, giving giving a big uh, speech or a presentation and your and your heart rate's pounding going into it, that can be exhilarating. You know, that can be a, a positive, productive form of anxiety. Mm -hmm. It can also be devastating yeah. and and make it so that you're not able to engage in those goals. Yeah. I mm -hmm. I know personally my when I I know when my anxiety is coming on um, based on uh, the biggest thing for me is mm -hmm. feeling tight chested for sure. Um, but I also, when I look back at sort of the last week or two, um, I notice that I'm sleeping more. I'm more tired during the day. I'll be carb craving more. That's one that I've recently, it took a long time to notice that, but I'll, I just find myself just wanting like sugary sugary sodas yeah. or sugary whatever um and same with like even at the end of the day if i you know have a beer i find myself wanting to right. have right. two beers or three beers instead of just instead of just one and it's just kind of like it's it's interesting how 
your body when it's out of its window of tolerance reaches for things that are actually mm -hmm. bad for it but it's just just finding yeah those all those things you mentioned are forms of self modulation or emotion modulation like i mentioned those kinds of levers that you can pull to change the way you feel or bring down the intensity of a feeling you can add to that um a lot of people with perfectionistic tendencies will even tend to have like skin picking or nail biting or hair pulling or tweezing or or um, repetitive behaviors or kind of get stuck in a routine um there there's a lot of behaviors that are kind of soothing in that way and and meet a temporary uh feeling that or meet a temporary need and with any of these things the question is is that behavior well it's usually effective that's why we do it right but is that behavior going to be healthy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or unhealthy um, is it going to work towards our goals or work against our goals and stepping back and noticing what are those activities that are helpful and help me um, long-term versus helpful in the moment, but unhelpful long-term, that can really help to shape more healthful behaviors and more healthful coping mechanisms. Right. So that's a good segue sort of. So when you do feel those, like if you feel some acute anxiety going on, or like I said, I look back over the last week or two and realize that there are some things that tip me off to the fact that yes. I am currently anxious. Um, what kinds of things can one do mm -hmm. in the moment to sort of uh, counteract yes, healthy yes. things, mind you, <laughs> being that we just talked about potentially unhealthy things, healthy things that they can do in the moment to counteract that. This is such a good stress. question. And I swear, if everybody could just listen closely and, and um, memorize the answer to this question and share it with friends and families and their children and <laughs> cousins, the world will be a better place. So, what we have to understand, number one, is the intensity of what we're feeling makes a difference for what we're going to do, okay? There's no one-size-fits-all solution. Like, um, I could name a 100 things right now. Yoga, reading the newspaper, watching TV, uh, eating a lemon drop that is sour. You know, I mean, I could just name a million things right now. And it, if somebody is in incredibly extreme distress like feeling like they're having a panic attack or something. And I say, oh, do yoga. You know, I they're hit me. You know, they're going to hang up the phone mm -hmm. or hit me or, or run away or say, how dare you? Basically, you don't get it. No amount of downward dog is going to make me stop feeling like I have a heart attack <laughs> right now, right? And so uh, if the intensity uh -huh. of what you're experiencing is like an eight out of 10 or a nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, we need to focus on a technique or a strategy that's gonna immediately and rapidly change the body chemistry in that moment. And so uh, we call skills that do that or strategies that do that distress tolerance skills. And um, my two favorite distress tolerance skills are ones that immediately stimulate the vagal nerve. That is the nerve connects to your brain, to your heart and lungs and stomach. And when this nerve is stimulated, it shuts off the fight or flight part of the nervous system that is responsible for anxiety. So when you directly stimulate this nerve, it shuts off the fight or flight system, almost like a miracle. And so 
how everyone wants to know, how do I stimulate that nerve? It's easier than you think. Just by putting ice or ice pack on the face, below the eyes or over the eyes, you can directly stimulate the vagal nerve instantly or by submerging the face in ice water. Uh, anything where you get icy cold right on the face, it stimulates the mammalian dive reflex and stimulates that vagus nerve. And if you pair that with a breathing technique where you breathe in for four and out for eight, then that doubly stimulates that nerve. And so anyone can stop any extreme distress or any panic by using those techniques in the moment. Now, is it gonna make you feel like calm as a baby and you go to sleep? Maybe not, but it might bring you down to like a seven or a six. And let me tell you, your toolkit when you're down at a seven or a six is so much more expanded. Your brain can actually solve problems so much better when you're at a mm. seven or a six than when you're like at a 10 out of 10. Um, I almost don't even need to tell you strategies for, for level six because probably you've all got like a million each. And and yoga is one of those <laughs> that it's evidence-based. It's been used for hundreds of years. I'm not down on yoga, but uh, yoga is for um, anxiety prevention, anxiety management. Um, it helps when you're at a level six, bring you to a level four. It's totally awesome. But the, there's so many people that get hurt and insulted and invalidated when we talk about emotion regulation strategies when what is needed is distress tolerance. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it absolutely. does. That's important. That's an important point. I like that sort of, you know, the response depends on the grade of your anxiety. You can't just throw small things at big problems exactly. and expect them to go And, and this so, goes for, you know, um, you and your role as um, practicing physicians, or if, if you have colleagues or family members that you can really tell they're nine out of 10 or 10 out of 10, you can, can even ask them, is this as intense as you've ever felt, if they say yes, you go grab the bag of frozen peas and you say here, and then you breathe with me. You don't like kind of be like, well, let's do this problem solving and let's analyze the situation. And what about this solution or that solution? You know, the person cannot engage in that kind of problem solving. And so we have to just do first things first. Right. Somebody can get their brain back and then you can problem solve all you want. Mm -hmm. So, so Dr. Kaz, when you're, um, I'm just going to bring like your patients into this and, and you're doing say like crisis management with them or you have someone on the phone with you and do you, is it helpful to try to put some sort of number to the amount of, you know, if it's anxiety to give that a number so you know um, kind of in your mind, the level of distress that this person is working with, and maybe you know that patient really well, but maybe you don't know them well. I is think that, that this is very, very, very helpful. One, in just helping you to assess, if they say, I'm at a 5 out of 10, that's a very different thing than I'm 10 out of 10, right? And you're immediately brought on mm -hmm. the same page of where they're at and what they might need just by having them name a number. The other reason this is useful is if somebody is, let's say, at a 10 out of 10, and then you put the ice pack on the face and you do pace breathing for three minutes, you can say, are you still at a 10 out of 10? They might say, well, I'm at a 9.5 out of 10. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's okay. Okay. All right. We're heading mm -hmm. in the right direction. Mm -hmm. We need to do more of this. Um, if they're still 10 out of 10, maybe mm -hmm. there's something that's not right. Maybe the ice isn't cold enough, or maybe 
Um, they need a modified breathing technique where you go in for four and out for six for a little bit before they're able to do in for four and out for eight. So it just allows you to um, uh, right. more precisely assess and meet their needs. And then the third reason why this is a technique that's used throughout um, cognitive behavioral therapies is if I ask you to stop and think of a number, you automatically have to pause and visit the part of your brain that deals with numbers, which is not your fight or flight center. Sure. It's the frontal lobe, um, the calculating mm -hmm. part of your brain. And so you're almost like momentarily dragging someone into a logical state in order to name a number. Now that's very temporary. It doesn't last long. It's not like you just put a math problem in front of somebody if they're having a crisis. But just that very exercise of pausing and thinking of a number can be directly therapeutic for the crisis management and de-escalation process. Yeah, I really like that. I, I, it's something that I guess that I've had uh, some insight into, but not really been able to label. But that kind of giving, having that introspective moment where you think about, you know, how bad is my anxiety at yeah. this moment in time, labeling it and then figuring out, I almost think of it as mm -hmm. like we set these asthma action plans um, for, for our asthma patients and having that, you know, almost in writing, say you're a student and, and you're very high anxiety, like I know Sam and I really were, especially during our first and second year, having that kind of, you know, anxiety action plan or something like that, where you're able to name exactly. a number. And, and you and may be in there. a position of supporting somebody, just like you would support a loved one, loved one with their asthma action plan and go get their inhaler and stuff. You might be able to, in, uh, to be in the position of supporting somebody with their anxiety uh, action or intervention plan. And I think sometimes where people worry like, oh, if I do that, am I enabling someone or just being like a crutch for somebody or something like that? And, um, you know, or wonder, is this a healthy thing to do? And you don't need to worry about that with this uh, because supporting people through this and helping them build these skills, uh, teaching them that ice on the face and that this breathing technique helps them uh, de-escalate that intensity that actually increases the likelihood that they'd be able to implement that plan on their own in the future. And that's very different from something like giving someone a medication. Like you and I know that there's this class of medications called benzodiazepines, which is routinely used in clinical care and the emergency room where somebody is feeling this intense feeling. And rather than using a direct uh, stimulation of the vagal nerve, you'll give somebody this pill that takes 15 minutes to sort of absorb in the system and then makes people feel kind of dissociated and sleepy. Um, when you do that, you actually teach the person that they do not have the wiring and the mechanisms to bring down the intensity, that they have to rely on this internal substance in order to have relief from the intensity. Mm -hmm. And the nature of that substance makes it so that people need more and more over time because it has less and less of an effect. And so that is actually something that is superficially helpful, but really unhelpful ultimately. Um, and you do need to worry about that kind of phenomena with those strategies, but not with this one I described. Right. That's a good, good point to keep in mind. Yeah. So in terms of, um, we talked about dealing with anxiety as it comes up. How about in terms of prevention? What are some things that you often recommend to people, um, whether they be patients, coworkers, whatnot, 
um, to try to stay mentally well in order to stave off anxiety. Well, that's easier said, said than done because we all have different sort of thermostats for our own personal anxiety. And, and sometimes that anxiety is instructive and helpful. And so we don't necessarily need to say that we need to mm -hmm. prevent anxiety because like I said, it's functional and motivates us. I, the only reason I get out of bed mm -hmm. in the morning is because I feel bad and anxious if I don't, like I'm going to get in trouble if I don't get out of bed. And so I don't want to get rid of my anxiety. <laughs> Very true. But um, how do we prevent it from getting to this overwhelming spillover point? Well, it is helpful to practice connecting the front of our brain to the anxiety centers of our brain. And so any practice that you can get in, in, in bringing intense anxiety from a 10 down to an eight or a seven, that's gonna reinforce wiring in the brain that will prevent um, feeling completely overwhelmed in the future. But you really have to build those, those um, mental pathways. And the, the term for that, don't cringe, because I know this is a cringy term at this point, but the actual term for that is mindfulness. And the reason why people don't like that term is the same reason we cringe when we hear yoga is because like, oh, what am I gonna do? Just say om if I'm having a crisis. But um, that <laughs> practice when you're not totally anxious of strengthening the connectivity from your panic center to the rational part of your brain can actually prevent um, these periods where you're completely out of control of your anxiety, where it goes 10 out of 10. The other thing is minimizing alcohol use because mm -hmm. um, alcohol use and, and caffeine actually, they kind of wreak, wreak havoc on your anxiety systems in a way um, that ultimately decreases your body's learning and control and anxiety signaling and experience. And so if you're having with anxiety, I really encourage people to minimize as much as possible both of those substances mm -hmm. and marijuana, mm -hmm. marijuana too. Everyone wants and to I, smoke pot when they're anxious. It just, of course, of course you do. It works for that <laughs> moment, unless you have a bad trip or get paranoid when you smoke pot. But um, ultimately it is not healthy for anxiety. Um, beyond that moment, it, it can really, uh, you know, cause disarray in the system. Sure. And um, I know we kind of, you're, you're kind of touching on um, ways to stay kind of mentally well. Um, could you talk a little bit about, because, you know, we all not here know that there is mm -hmm. a role for medications and there's a role for therapy and, you know, touching base with your primary care doctor um, could you talk us through a little bit about, cause I'm sure that you have patients or have had, um, other colleagues, you know, medical students, things like that, who maybe have come to you and said like, Hey, I'm doing all of this stuff. I feel like I'm going through mm -hmm. all of my mindfulness techniques. I'm seeing a therapist, but there's just, I feel like I need, you know, to take one more step and I'm just a little bit on un like uneasy about starting a medication. Do you have kind of a spiel that you'll that you'll talk sure. to someone about in that scenario or how well, do you yeah there are medications that when used over time actually help people with their anxiety 
classes of medications in SSRI category like citalopram or fluoxetine can, when taken over time, over a period of weeks, kind of down regulate uh, the anxiety system slightly. And so those are uh, worth exploring. I also find that sometimes people take medications and for some reason find them stimulating or cause increased anxiety. So it is a risk that there could be increased anxiety or restlessness with these classes of medications. So I talk about that very clearly because if that happens, we don't wanna continue it. But if you're somebody for whom the medication is helpful, then it's absolutely a totally appropriate and reasonable tool to have in the toolbox. And you can take those medications as, as long as needed uh, on a daily basis. And what I like about that class of medications is it's not calming pills. It's not like you take it and feel immediately calm and sleepy. They work on areas of the brain over time to downregulate the system of anxiety rather than um, kind of taking something to feel sleepy in that moment uh, or calm. And so um, the reason why I really don't recommend those kinds of medications where you take it and feel calm in the moment is it doesn't really um, teach the system. What you're trying to do is teach your system that a certain stimulus or environment is safe, um, even though you're getting signals that it's not safe. And that is best accomplished through learning in the moment versus taking a pill in the moment, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Do you then ever have counseling or talk about you know, patient, a patient might say, well, you know, I, I would like to start a medication, uh -huh. but I don't want this to be forever. Yeah. That's okay. It might not it, need to be forever. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you ever ask them, like, what, how do you handle that when they ask you, or like, when it seems like they clearly have reservations about mm -hmm. the length of time that they'll have to take well, the medication? Well, I how respect it. So if that? somebody says, I, it's not my preference to be on a medication long-term or, or even short-term. The nice thing about anxiety and depression when they're in the mild or moderate form is they are extremely responsive to techniques and strategies that are non-medication. And so we really have so many effective tools in our toolbox for helping people with these types of symptoms that you can really be person-centered in the approach that they're seeking. So if somebody is seeking a medication, I recommend uh, SSRI. If they um, want something short-term just for that day though, I will generally teach them how to stimulate their vagal nerve so that they're empowered to do that and uh, don't necessarily um, need to use these techniques that are gonna disrupt their system long-term or, or um, medications. Mm -hmm. That makes great. sense. I guess on the, on the flip side of things, do you, so like, I, I guess mm -hmm. a lot of patients are worried that they're going to have to take them forever. Um, and some patients I feel like have expressed, I, I've seen patients before that have expressed worry over coming off of the medications because they're worried that they're going to be sent right back into the anxiety yeah. or depression that they were experiencing prior to the medications um, starting. Should, should we be worried about that or should we be encouraging patients uh, to taper? You have to taper these, these medications, whether you're on it for six months or six years, they got to be tapered. And um, I'll taper people real slowly because some of these do have explicit withdrawal effects. Um, paroxetine is one that comes to mind or um, 
venlafaxine. If you stop those medications entirely without a very substantial taper, people will like get the flu. They'll get electric zaps in their brain, this really uncomfortable sensation. And yeah, they'll feel miserable. And um, it's it's it can be harmful for people to have this kind of withdrawal phenomena. Now that's not everybody. Some people tolerate stopping medications and they don't notice anything. But I would say if somebody is concerned about coming off of a medication, that's warranted, they should be. And you you not that you don't stop it then, if you feel like um, you wanna try no longer utilizing that medication or it's been a sufficient period of time or you've built other skills in the meantime, you've gotta come off of these medications slowly, maybe even over a period of months. And that can um, really uh, buffer some of the concern um, or some of the biological withdrawal associated with these medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Dr. Kaz, we wanna be respectful of your time. We know you're very busy. Um, I would just say that I always, when you were teaching our course in med school, I was always, I always loved that you sort of had this philosophy, it seemed that yes, there is always a place or not always, there is a place at times for medication, but um, you want to expand your patient's ability to handle their life stresses on their own. Um, and I always, yes, whether it's, it um, like whether you work with a therapist or get some coaching, way. work with a psychiatrist, integrate medications in your plan. The idea is to have a really effective and sustainable plan that's going to increase your health and well-being over time uh, rather than, um, you know, disrupt your health and well-being over time for. Oh, yeah, we really appreciate you saying that. that yeah, that's super point. important. So thanks. Um, and I just want to echo back to what something you had said earlier, yeah. too. I really love that notion of, of having a toolbox and and especially as we, you know, try to help others by just talking about mental health on this podcast, thinking about what we can do to, to best build our own toolbox and, and talk to others about um, filling up that toolbox with, with different things that they can use. I think that's a really important right. metaphor. So and, um, thanks for bringing I that really up. appreciate the way um, you all have focused in these discussions on suicide and death as a potential um, terrible and tragic outcome to, to distress or, or to uh, stress, depression and anxiety. Um, this is obviously the worst possible outcome for any of these uh, circumstances, symptoms or issues. And so thank you so much for not being afraid to, to say that, to go there, to put that on the table because ultimately um, we want people to be alive, to find that life that's safe and worth living. And the more we can um, convince people and join with people in that goal, the better. Short-term gains. And those I, I feel are the most effective strategies. And I just wanna make one last comment before we wrap up. Sometimes people have anxiety because they're not safe. And when, when that happens, that's a match to their circumstance. Think about people who are experiencing uh, systematic or societal oppression or marginalization or lack of representation. Mm -hmm. um, think about people who are living in a home with someone who hits them or hurts them or, or berates them or degrades them. This might be you or this might be your patient. And, and in those cases, if they're saying, I'm not feeling well, I'm feeling anxiety, 
the first question should always be, are you, are you safe? Are you getting the needs met? And if the answer right. is no, they don't have an anxiety disorder. They have appropriate anxiety to a disordered circumstance. <laughs> and be our job to work to try to mitigate that circumstance or to help them <laughs> achieve safety. And it may not be a matter of, well, take two of these and call me in the morning, or maybe you need to rethink this or reframe this. No, someone's hitting you, not okay. Right. Is there somewhere somewhere else you can stay so you can sleep at night without fear of somebody hurting you, right? And so um, I just didn't want that to go unsaid because sometimes these anxiety responses are overwhelming and completely legitimate based on the threat at hand. And uh, I don't want to minimize any of those such circumstances. Yeah. Thanks, Dr. Kaz. Um, well, why don't we wrap up and uh, sign off? We want to thank you again, Dr. Kaz Nelson, for joining us today. We couldn't appreciate it more. Yeah, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Sounds thank great. you all. Well, Take thanks. care now.